This is the Agile Business Athlete Show, a well-being podcast that shows you how to beat burnout and have more fun. In each episode, Leanne will be joined by special guests who will share their secrets of how they stay healthy and energized and the simple steps they take to prioritize good health. And if they can do it, so can you. And now over to your host, Leanne Spencer. So my guest this week is Gillian Lavender. Gillian is the author of the brilliant book, Why Meditate, which I've read and you can find in all good bookshops and online, Uh, has led global publishing companies in the past before teaching Vedic meditation from 2003 onwards. So we definitely have some experience in the uh, the Zoom room, as it were, and is now the co-founder of the London Meditation Centre in London and New York. So it's a great pleasure to talk to you, Gillian. I'm a huge fan of meditation. Uh, Welcome to the show, first of all. Thank you, Gillian. Hi. Hello. So first question is, at what point in your life did you find meditation or did meditation find you? (laughs) Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Um, uh, A long time ago. um, So here I am showing my age. Um, Back in the time when meditation was quite weird, I think, um, I learned to meditate when I was living in Sydney and I found out about it through a friend, a friend's father. And so this is going back 25 plus years. Um, And I was somebody who knew nothing about meditation or yoga. I was not um, at that kind of, in that space at all. Um, But I had seen what it had done for this man, particularly around his sleep um, challenges. He was an insomniac. And uh, that got my attention. And also I think the fact that he wasn't weird and woo-woo and yet here he was doing this thing that I perceived was going to be weird and woo-woo and he was starting to sleep and it just, it was kind of really attention getting for me. I was like, oh, this is interesting. And I was always feeling tired. And, you know, even when I thought I was sleeping okay, I'd wake up sort of dragging myself out of bed and I'd, I was doing, you know, working long hours and I was working across different time zones and I was feeling that fatigue in my system and I, yeah, so I was just, I was intrigued and it was that that really led me to kind of overcome my initial kind of questions in my mind and turn up for an introductory talk to see what this was about. And then I saw my soon-to-be teacher looked normal and everybody else in the room looked normal and I was like, Oh, you know, and then I heard about all of the science behind it because I, you know, there was not no beads in sight, you know, no flowing robes. It was actually presented in a very coherent, easy to understand way. And I, I really, it resonated. And then I just found myself, you know, when you make those moves in your life where you find yourself doing something and you can't actually remember making you know, a kind of intellectual decision. You just find yourself moving in that direction. And that's kind of how it happened. And I think those are often, you know, the really good decisions in a, in a sense because yeah. you just follow that feeling. Yeah. So let me let me jump in there because you've used words like woo-woo, robes, um, weird and normal. Um, and I think you've touched on something that probably still prevails, which is that meditation has a little bit of an image problem. People tend to think that it might just be for hippies and yogis and whenever I talk about it as a concept rather than a practice or a specific type of meditation, I talk about some of the the people who've openly stated that meditation is a key part of their success. People like Ariana Huffington, Oprah Winfrey, Russell Simmons, Rupert Murdoch, Mark Benioff, people, if you were being stereotypical, you'd think, really? Rupert Murdoch, Mark Benioff? But they do. And they've done it for at least 10 years. That's why it's noteworthy. Um, 
all the way back to the beginning of what you just said there about the questions that were going through your mind about whether this was for you. What were those questions? Because I strongly suspect without judgment, there may be some listeners who have those questions. Yeah, for sure. I think, I think you're right. You know, we, there are still these preconceived ideas about what it might involve. Um, so, you know, let me share with you some of the things that were rattling around for me and that I, I witness in my students, you know, what are the classics? Well, like you say, you know, I'm going to have to give up my flat white or I'm going to have to sort of change my consumption of, you know, got to stop drinking coffee and have more kale juice kind of idea, you know, that I've got to be vegetarian in order to meditate, which is not the case, or that I've got to change my life in some way. Um, or I have to, it's a belief system, you know, I've got to adopt some kind of philosophy or that there is some slight kind of religious sort of angle to it. Um, that's one. I think actually probably the two that stand out the most though come back to people's personal sense of whether they're going to be able to pull this off. And one of those is the, the old chestnut of time. You know, it's like, I don't have enough time. I don't have time to sit down and close my eyes. And in this very hectic, very fast-paced, very demanding, very technologically switched-on life that we lead, where I think most people feel that time is such a precious resource and that they don't have enough of it, the idea of sitting down and closing your eyes for 20 minutes twice a day, which is what's involved in practicing Vedic meditation, which is what I teach, is kind of like, whoa, wait a minute, you know, um, is that a luxury that, you know, I just don't think I can really afford or just practically I'm not going to be able to pull that off. And, you know, why would I, why would I sort of invest that time? So we need to understand the return on that investment. And this is what, you know, we can talk about in a moment, you know, what happens to you when you do that. So that's one. I had that moment of panic. I was like, geez, 40 minutes. You've got to be kidding me. You know, I'm always feeling like I'm chasing time. So that's one. The second thing is, again, a personal perception about whether they're going to be able to do it. So, Again, this comes back to a misconception around, well, meditation is difficult. Meditation is hard work. Meditation involves a lot of focus, a lot of trying not to think, um, clearing the mind. I hear this a lot, you know, because there is this sense that there is something beyond all of this busy, you know, um, thought-filled, very sort of active minds that people have. There's a place that is more settled. There is a place that is more calm. And yet there's a sense that I can't get there. You know, my mind is bonkers. You know, it's all over the place. I've got so much going on. How could I possibly settle down? And that's linked to this idea that I have to try to stop thinking. And that in itself is, is going to take you into a very, very frustrating kind of loop. You know, if I say to you, okay, Leanne, stop thinking right now, stop thinking, you're going to think about not thinking and then you'll think about the next question and you'll think, oh no, wait a yeah, minute, no, don't It's very think. energy intensive, yeah, not to yeah, attempt to not think. Frustrating, hard work doesn't work. 
So then you've had that experience and then you think, well, oh, I can't do this. And my message is actually rather than going against the nature of the mind, we need to work with the mind. And that is what correct meditation does. Because the moment you fight the mind and you try and, you know, go against it, you create that friction and it's difficult and it's frustrating. But when we work with the mind, you know, what does the mind want? The mind wants something fascinating. It wants something charming. Even if you're thinking about a problem or something that's bugging you, there's the the bliss of the solution that lies on the other side. If I get through this, I'm going to solve it. I'm going to address it. I'm going to tick it off my list. I am going to move forward in a progressive way. So there's, this is what our mind is doing all the time. And so in, in the technique that I teach, which is the oldest technique in the world, and that says something, you know, this has stood the test of time. We want to give the mind something charming and that is a sound and that's what we call a mantra and that's what the meditator thinks while they're sitting on the tube with their eyes closed, thinking their personal sound that's been given to them by a qualified teacher and that sound is very, very charming for the mind and we think it silently and then the mind is attracted to that. It goes to it automatically. So there's no hard work. There's no focusing. There's no effort. It all happens automatically. So the style of meditation you teach is Vedic, is that correct? That's correct. Vedic meditation. And that's 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the afternoon. And we'll draw out more of the benefits so that people don't immediately just see a block of time and see the value. By the end of this episode, you'll see the value rather than the time. So ignore that bit. But throughout those two periods of 20 minutes each, are you repeating that mantra initially until the mind is lulled into the state you wish it to be in? Or is it continually throughout those 20 minutes? When I sit down to meditate, I close the eyes and I have an intention to think that sound. Mm -hmm. Here's the interesting thing. I'm not willing to use any effort to enforce that preference. I have a preference to think the mantra. But what's very interesting about this particular pulsation of sound is that it has no meaning. It has a vibratory quality that's very charming for the mind. So when you think it, it automatically, and again, there's the automatic aspect of this, starts to self-refine. It becomes fainter and fainter and softer. And the mind is drawn inwards um, based on the charm value rather than on the sort of forcing the mind into submission. So I have the preference to think the mantra and the mantra might be there for a bit and then it might disappear. And then the mind falls mute, it falls quiet. And I drop into a state that's always there. It's just that very often we don't get to experience it because we're up at the surface of the mind. Mm. And we start, we drop into that state of being human beings, not human thinkings or human doings, human beings. Now, what happens very interestingly is that the body follows the mind. So the mind is resting deeply. The body starts to rest at an unprecedented level. So I'm sitting there on the tube doing my meditation, thinking this sound. And then what happens is it gets very, very faint. My body is now resting within a few minutes, many times deeper than sleep. I just want to emphasize this, many times deeper than the deepest point in your sleep. I'm not conked out. I'm sitting upright. 
I've got my bag on my lap, I can hear noises, and yet I'm in a hypo, meaning low metabolic state, very, very quickly. And has this been measured with brain waves or measured in, I'm sure it has been measured in a lab, the effect of meditation on, on yeah, the yeah. brain? Oh, I mean, so many studies have looked at what happens in the brain and what happens in the respiratory system, what happens in, and this is particularly important because, you know, the primary fuel in our body is oxygen. And so it's the most scientific way to look at how somebody is resting. You measure their metabolic rate. And when I say metabolic rate, I don't mean fat metabolism. I mean oxygen metabolism. Mm -hmm. So you start running down the street, your demand for fuel, for oxygen goes up, your metabolic rate rises. You sit down in the chair and close the eyes and practice Vedic meditation. The mind settles down. The demand for fuel, oxygen drops And so the metabolic rate drops. Now we can also look at heart rate and we can look at the changes in your um, perspiration. We can look at the biochemistry of the body, which is changing. There's less, you know, the body stops pumping out cortisol and the adrenal glands are not pumping out the norepinephrine, which is associated with fight, flight and stress reactivity. So there's the body in that very uh, deep rested state very efficiently. And so bodies, what do they do when they get rest? Well, they heal and they purify. So the body activates a process that actually activates the brain. And we might have a few thoughts in meditation and then there's a little moment, oh, mantra. And then we come back to the mantra. So it's very easy peasy. It's not, oh, you know, I must stop thinking. I mustn't think about this. There will be thoughts actually in this technique in the 20 minute sitting, but they're a function of something incredibly valuable going on. They are a function of the body ejecting fatigue and stress and toxins. And that activity in the body will pull the mind up for a little moment and we'll have some thoughts. And then we come back to the mantra. So it's a very dynamic process and it's very efficient. It's immediate. And you can have the busiest mind and you can be as wound up as they come and this will work. If you can think, you can do this. Mm. Brilliant. Let's talk more about the benefits. Um, I think the one you've articulated just there, which is the fact that it mimics very, very, very deep sleep, deeper than the typical person will get when they put their head on the pillow at night, Mm. will be enough for a lot of people. But what are some of the other benefits? And let's, let's talk firstly about mental and then physical or the other way around if you prefer. Can we start with, I think, and I, I talk about this in the book, you know, I give the 10 reasons to yeah. why meditate. And I, I start very specifically with stress and that has both an impact on the mental and the physical. So let's kind of just cover that off as an entry point. The reason mm-hmm. I started with stress is because we have an epidemic of stress in our society. Now, what do we mean by stress? There's a lot of misunderstanding about this. It's a word that's crept into common parlance in a way that's a bit sloppy when you get clear about it. So we have many demands. I go down to the train station. I'm looking for the train. The train's not working today. Okay, so that's a demand. That's a change in expectation. What that's asking of me is adapt. New information, train not coming. Okay, how am I going to get to my destination? So... That is a moment for me either to adapt to that demand in a way that's smooth and appropriate, or if I don't have the capacity to adapt, I will maladapt and I will therefore get stressed. 
because I'm not able to come up with a response that's smooth and appropriate and progressive. I'll, you know, have a fit. I'll, you know, get wound up. I'll whatever. So I'll get panicked. You know, there is a stress reaction. It's a reaction to a demand. Now, stress reactivity does a number of things to our brain and it does a number of things to our physiology. As I said, the biochemistry of the body changes immediately. The body goes into a hyper-excitory state. It's on red alert. There is no saber-tooth cat on the platform, but the body is kind of prepped for perceived danger. And so vision gets very sort of tunnel-like and the immune system stops fighting viruses and dealing with overproduction of cells. Now it's pumping out antibodies because it's dealing with for a potential bacterial incursion. The digestive system is not a priority in that moment. So acid starts dumping into the tummy, clearing that out. We need to be light. We need to be nimble. The vision gets very, you know, everything sort of, everything changes very, very quickly. And that's the physiology. Well, how's that experienced emotionally? Well, anxiety, sadness, feeling down, feeling flat, feeling aggressive, feeling irritated, feeling cranky. These are the emotional moods, very common in which stress will manifest. So what we want is we want to be able to deal with demands that, you know, the, the answer to life is not run away and live in a tree house in, in the jungle. It's be available for life and success and fulfillment. That's what we're all looking for. We want that relevance. We want that engagement. So what I want is I want to be able to handle these demands, these changes of expectation without getting stressed. Meditation is bumping up my adaptation energy, my capacity to engage with that demand. I'm not running on empty. I'm not unwell. I am in a balanced state. I have energy because I'm meditating. Um, so I'm getting those two mega doses of deep rest. I'm sleeping better. So it has a knock-on effect there. And it's changing my brain functioning. You know, you sit down and, mm -hmm. and we measure somebody in a lab practicing this technique. We will see the the change in their by the brain signature very clearly you know the the engagement in that prefrontal cortex this is the the executive processing center of the human brain we call it the ceo of the brain because it is how we make judgments and we analyze information that's coming in from these demands when you're tired and when you're stressed your prefrontal cortex goes offline we get into the reptilian, the old part of the brain, the amygdala kicks in, the base of the fear emotions, all of that, which is not what we want to be driving our decision-making when faced with the train not being on time. So we are having an impact on the structure of the brain, the, the, the brain waves. We have a lot of more alpha brainwave activity, which is associated with this restful alert state, a lot of coherence between the left and the right hemisphere, and what we see in longitudinal studies is the impact of the malleability of the brain because we know that the brain is not a rock. It's like a river. What you do with your brain changes it. Somebody sits, you know, for 12 hours every day on Space Invaders, you know, that's going to do something to their brain. If somebody learns a musical instrument, somebody learns to juggle, somebody learns another language, you are asking those interneuronal connections 
to be activated and to embed. And so when we see the long-term studies, we see, ah, brain is normalizing, it's optimizing that, and it's stabilizing. And so how does that play out? Well, on a day-to-day basis, it means memory improving. It means more clarity. It means more ability to focus in the midst of a lot going on. It means having more capacity to hold more things in our awareness at one time. So we can see it in creativity tests. So the mental functioning is going to be undermined by being stressed and tired. Nobody, nobody is going to make their best decisions, their most generous decisions, their most creative decisions when they're tired and cranky and unwell. Yeah. And if I can just cut in there for a second, I think one thing that in all the anecdotal conversations I've had over the years of working with people on their well-being, I think one thing that concerns people is what is the cost of the way that I'm living today? And is it is it is it refundable? Uh, so yes, I'm working long hours, but hey, I'll rest when I hit success in three or four years' time. Or I'm concerned that the amount I drink might be harmful for me, or, or whatever it is, whatever type of stressor is is being overused or abused. Uh, and that's what's really interesting. I myself have a background of, of alcoholism. I, I drank for twenty years. I've been sober coming up ten years in first of April, and. Um, and one of the concerns that I had is that you do irreparable damage to the brain. I think potentially that could be true, but actually what we know now through things like meditation, obviously sobriety, sleep, drinking water, eating good foods and all the rest of it, being being as happy as you can be, you can actually repair the brain. You can do a considerable amount of repair. Obviously, meditation is the theme of today, but it's never too late if you've been working long hours or you've, you've neglected your sleep or you've drunk too much alcohol or whatever it might be. The wonderfully uplifting thing, if people only took this from this conversation, is that you can repair it. And I think meditation is, is a relatively easy, free, democratically available, because if you live and breathe, you can do it. Do it, you know, location independent form of, amongst the many other things that we'll talk about, essentially sort of rebuilding isn't quite the right word, reshaping and regenerating the brain. Yeah, I think it's a really important point. You know, we must we must recognize the incredible capacity of human beings to adapt and to change and to heal. And all we need is the right conditions. And uh, we can see it. We can see it in the laboratory. You know, the the brain is not Static. Now we know that there is, you know, a, a finite number of brain cells, as it were. But we we also know that that dendritic web, those that interneuronal connections, that's really what's key. And as you say, there are so many factors that support brain health. You know, hydration, which is a very interesting one, because I, what I see in my work is a kind of a tendency towards chronic dehydration. They're very interesting when people learn to meditate, they will report in those first few days, wow, I'm just drinking so much more water. I am thirsty. And, you know, that is something that has, and I write about it in my book, it has a huge impact on brain health. So yes, there are many, many ways and we must, we must um, understand the power of the the psychophysiology to adapt and to restructure and to re-engineer. It's a question of what are the conditions that that will facilitate that, that create the, the, the way for that to happen. 
And that's where we know the power of deep rest. And it's interesting, you know, when people are stressed and tired, one of the first things that goes is their sleep. The very Mm. thing that they need becomes more and more tricky. So, you know, in terms of the benefits of the meditation, because we're getting that deep rest and we're able to relieve that pressure on the system and we are able to create the conditions for that healing to happen, then sleep will become more restful and sleep will become more powerful, more healing in its effect. So the knock-on effect of this is is huge and, and you're right, you know, moving the body, eating well, you know, having that that bliss chemistry in the system, you know, laughing, being, there's so many aspects to this. And, you know, what is the underlying cause? I'm always interested in getting to the root cause. What we see in our society, unfortunately, is a lot of sort of what I call band-aid, sort of of put something on at a kind of a surface level. Underneath, we haven't really addressed the issue, the legacy that's there, and we absolutely can. You know, I was on a panel recently and it was all about anxiety, which is a big issue in our society. And the message was sort of like, well, you know, you have to sort of, it's a, it's a fundamental human emotion and you just sort of have to learn to get, to cope with it, you know, get some good coping tools. And I kind of, you know, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. This, the sense of just coping for me is not complete enough and it's not, it's not enough. It's we can do more. We can absolutely release these past impressions from the system if we know how, you know. So, yeah, you're right. Many, many factors. But all of these come down to the choices that we're making. And it's hard to make the choices that are more beneficial and life-supporting when we're not well and when we're tired and when we're stressed. Yeah. So we were talking about why meditate? Uh, and you've got 10 reasons in the book, uh, which I'll put a link to in the show notes if anyone wants to pick that up um, and have a read. It's well worth it. What are other, maybe two of the other key points, if you can pick out two others that you think would particularly resonate? I think that one of the, so we've talked about stress and we've talked about sleep. Mm. I think this um, impact of adaptability and handling change is a really topical and important thing for us because we have witnessed in the last two years alone an immense amount of collective change. Things have been turned upside down. And so how we deal with change is going to be increasingly important in our life because there is one constant in life and that is change. And the pace Mm -hmm. of change is not plateauing, it is accelerating. So as human beings, the optimization of the brain functioning, the utilization of our mental potential, our capacity to stay healthy is really important. And so this, I think, is something that is not talked about enough. And it's something that I look to as one of the benefits of meditation is this flexibility, adaptability, enthusiasm about the unknown rather than, oh, please let me just control everything and keep everything sort of status quo, status quo, don't don't change, don't change, which is sort of like trying to stop the river from flowing. You know, it's like life is moving, life is shifting. And 
if we're going to try and control our way through life, it's going to be exhausting. So this is a this is a very important point. Being healthier, you know, many, many studies that have been done on the impact of meditation, and that has a related issue to longevity, because when we are more resilient, the, the studies show that the effect on our biological age is very profound and, and very immediate. And, you know, when we look at long-term studies of meditators who've been doing this for, let's say, more than five years, we can see that their biological aging is reducing by about 12 years on average. This is a difference to your chronological age. You know, chronological age, I've had 35 birthdays. Well, what's your biological age? If you've been living life pretty hard, you mm-hmm. biologically might be 45. Yeah, um, yeah. So this has been shown in the research to be one of the key factors in um, our ability to uh, not hold on to stress and to not have that acidity in our system, lowering of the blood lactate levels, and to know that the, there's a really a reduction in this. Um, so, yeah, these are things that are happening at a physiological level. And then, you know, we can look at creativity and we can look at the impact on relationships, you know, mm. something that's very important for all of us, you know, um, how we interact with others is there's nobody, I think, listening to this podcast that should be up in a cave in the Himalayas for 23 hours a day. You know, we are in relation. I don't just mean lovey-dovey. I mean, you know, relationship to our environment, relationship to our co-workers, you know, the person that sells you the newspaper. It's We are in relationship and relationships are a function of what we bring to them. Having said that, um, very pertinent actually, you know, the fact that a lot of people metaphorically have been in a cave for 23 hours because we've been in lockdown this morning, this morning, about five in the morning, I heard somebody calling, please help me. Um, I, and various other things that I won't, I won't go into in case they're triggering for people, but it was a gentleman in what I would describe as a state of very calm distress, if that makes sense. Uh, and he, he approached me again this morning when I was in the garden with, with Cammy the dog. Uh, and I ended up trying to get him some help. He's not in an urgent enough state to get that. So I now see him falling. The mental health services are due to call me back because he doesn't have a phone. Um, the point of all this is that I don't think he's alone. I think he, he was saying, and I've never felt like this. And uh, I've seen him before. He potters about with his basket. Um, never, never seen to be in any sort of distress, mental, physical or otherwise. So perhaps, I don't know this, but, but lockdown has just been a complete disaster for him. And I think for a lot of people, it will have been. A lot of people have been in a metaphorical cave for 23 hours a day. And we're just seeing the ramifications of that, the scar tissue that's going to come from that, the harm done. What I like about meditation, sort of connected but separate to that point, is it is a way, you know, as human beings, we're always trying to change how we feel always, whether it's through what we might consider to be negative influences like smoking, sex, gambling, other addictions, or whether it's in a more positive way, meditating, being out in natural light, being out in nature. But we're always trying to change how we feel. And one of the things I love about meditation is it does that in a really constructive way with a ton of other benefits. But in a, you would argue 20 minutes, I I get a benefit in 10, the 10 minutes I do. I'm not going to say it's as good as, I've no idea, but it feels beneficial enough for me to do it consistently. Mm -hmm. And I can build on that. 
I, I get very positive adaptations, just generally feeling calmer. I know my resting heart rate goes down because I can track it with wearable tech. Um, the science, I haven't measured this personally, but the science tells us it reduces blood pressure. I'm able to think a little more clearly. Um, I don't know if I said this at the beginning, but less reactive. I'm definitely calmer. Yeah. In general, definitely calmer. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've just had a house fall through. It's a holiday home, so I'm not asking anyone to get their violins out. It's a, it, the definition of a first world problem where an alien yeah. to come down and ask what one was would be your holiday home has fallen through. But I was, you know, just incredibly calm, partly because there's some very, very severe things going on in the world and this is no big deal at all. But it's this general sense of, of calmness. And that, I think, for, for anyone listening who's who wants to develop the meditation practice or even commence one, and of course, you, your, your centre would be a very good place to start. That's, I think, one of the most, the hugest benefits. It's a positive way to change how you feel. Yeah, absolutely. And to do that from... The, the deepest level of who you are, you know, I think you've touched on a lot of really important points. You know, it's, you know, to make a decision from a place of groundedness and calm means that the quality of that decision is going to be upgraded immediately. If you're making a decision, it's like, you know, you look at the surface of a lake and if it's all churned up, it's very hard to see down and underneath you know, I can't get clarity at all because the, the surface is all so disturbed. If I settle that lake down and the surface of that lake is very, very still, it's like a mirror, it's like glass. I look down and I can see right the way down to the bottom. I have clarity. And when our nervous system is churned up, clarity is one of the first things that goes out the window. And therefore, our capacity to make the right decision is also really uh, affected negatively. I think the other thing I wanted to pick up on, yes, you know, we have to recognize that this demand, this collective demand has affected people in all sorts of very different ways. And, and this is a reflection of people's, how they were when they went into this period that we've been in. You know, these issues are not just something in the making of the last two years. These are issues that have been embedded in our society and for individuals for a very long time. And it's kind of shone the light on a lot of things. And, you know, there are differing levels of capacity to deal with these things. And I'm seeing it a lot, you know, a sort of a re-emergence from lockdown anxiety. It's like, well, how do I re-engage with the world? Because actually I haven't had to in the same way. And for some people that's maybe suited them or been easier. And now it's like, whoa, I've got to get back out into it. And it's a pretty churned up collective right now. We can see that. And so with that comes another layer of adaptability and uncertainty and drawing down on their energy and their capacity to respond. And I think, you know, we have as a society, we do want to feel well, you know, happiness is our birthright. And, and so where is that happiness? Well, you know, as a society, it's like we've kind of been in a collective timeout. You know, we've been living a life where if we have this experience, we go on these holidays or we buy those shoes or we, you know, get that job or we cuddle that person, we will be happy. And I call this the happiness via acquisition mentality. Mm. And our society is supporting this. It's based on this. It's like, get those experiences, get that person, get those things. You will feel better. 
Now, what we find is that actually doesn't doesn't work in the sense that, you know, we can get moments, flashes of pleasure, of course, but that baseline of sustainable fulfillment is not going to come through acquisition. I work with many people who have been very successful in acquiring. Miserable. And what they learn very quickly is, well, that's not it. And one of the key things of meditation is this self-sufficiency over our ability to settle down, as you say, and, and drop into a calmer state and experience that baseline of equanimity and happiness, bliss, whatever you want to call it, that is inside, that is a self-referral experience. There's no amount of acquisition of things and stuff and people and experiences that is going to give you that in that same stable way. And so this orientation of where we're looking, the baseline search for fulfillment, the baseline search for for happiness is an honourable one. You know, so if somebody is reaching for the bottle and that's the place where they perceive it to be, the, we have to honour the, the mechanism, the underlying human desire to feel, as you say, better. <laughs> you know, mm. we're all searching for happiness. And the question is, well, where, where are we looking? And, and my point to people, and this is perhaps a bigger kind of more <laughs> bigger topic, but, you know, that endless search for it to be out there is is not going to deliver uh, in the way that people are hoping. Actually, mm. there is an experience that is more internal and more settled, a place inside that is your baseline, and that ability to access that and one of the tools being meditation, the primary tool is meditation is going to allow you to stabilize connection with that place. And then going out and having good experiences is all great, but it's not coming from a place of desperation or a place of need or, you know, a sense of I lack something, so I'll get it from that person. Yeah. I think I think we are in pursuit of junk values in the main, and I think we've lost connection to a lot of the important things, to nature, to animals, to the symbiotic nature of our, of our relationship with the world. Um, and I said the world in a natural sense, the natural world, but also to ourselves, to others. And I think meditation is one route in to that reconnection. Um, to, to, and I've noticed in, in somebody I know very well who's, who's gone through you know, your, your teachings and now does that meditation twice a day, uh, closer to herself which is really interesting. And it's not a benefit, you know, there's a lot of talk about, you know, reducing blood pressure, reducing resting heart rate and, and the other benefits of meditation. That's one that, that's perhaps not talked about quite so much, which is huge. If you get comfortable with yourself, some of these other ways that you're trying to connect, such as addictive behaviors, negative, you know, I guess all addiction has a negative connotation. You, you don't need them anymore. Yeah. Um, and I yeah. think, you know, we, Somebody asked me, you know, what's the biggest thing you've gained from meditation? And, you know, there are so many things, but actually it's exactly what you're saying. You know, it's that sense of self-confidence about being able to trust my intuition, my fine level of feeling of how, how is it that I am able to perceive this moment and come up with a response and act. And that is a self that is a self-confidence. That's knowing yourself and that's trusting yourself. And that is 
one of the fundamental benefits of being able to settle down your individuality into that broader aspect of who we all are. We know this from physics. You know, you talk to a leading quantum field theorist, they'll tell you that this world that we think of as being separate, you know, that tree is separate from that bush, from that, you know, thing over there, that person. Actually, no, <laughs> everything, everything is connected. And there's that, you know, time-tested saying, you know, as you sow, so shall you reap. It's, you know, for everything that we do, there's a reaction, there's cause and effect. It's not random. There mm. is intelligence in the universe. You know, walnut trees produce walnuts and mango trees produce mangoes. And there is that. And, and as you say, we, when we lose connection to that, we're like this sort of rudderless, kind of ship that's, you know, the wind blows this way. Oh, I'll go that way. And, you know, this big wave comes. Okay. You know, and, and we lose connection to ourselves and to the broader perspective um, of yeah. life. So there are so many aspects and, and our search as human beings is for meaning. It is for connection. It is for that underlying sense of happiness that you've been talking about. And, that does require tools in our life that allow us to de-excite and settle down and, and get in touch with that. And there are many ways to do that. Someone will be sitting on a cliff looking out over the Grand Canyon and watching that sunset and they'll have a flash of it. You know, we can find it in nature. We can find it in all sorts of experiences. You know, you play with a toddler or with an uh, your your puppy and you're there and you're in the moment and you're you're present we get flashes of it but we we need something more stable more we need to to be able to really um own that experience as a baseline experience and and that's where meditation is so helpful brilliant i wanted to bring you on because I knew it would be a great conversation. And the show is the Agile Business Athlete Show. And the idea is that we look to athletes and basically what they will do is look ahead, what's coming up, and usually a sporting event for them. Uh, but for us, it could be a personal professional event. Personal might be a child starting a new school. Professional maybe a promotion we've just accepted. We then prepare so that we have the resilience, the energy, the mental well-being to perform well at that event. We, we perform and then we recover. And it's that recovery piece, that I think, is the missing piece for so many people. And I know that meditation could be applied to all of those. It gives you the foresight to be able to predict. Uh, the under, It's part of the preparation, helps you to perform, and then also aids with that recovery. So that was really what I, I wanted to get from this is to demonstrate to people how meditation can help with all aspects of that, those principles. Uh, let's just spend a few minutes talking about the London Meditation Centre. What, what do you offer? How does it work? If people were interested, how could they, they uh, apply to be involved? Hmm. So my partner, Michael, and I um, have been teaching uh, for quite some time now, and we are based in London. We also have New York Meditation Centre as well. So we teach in person. Uh, we teach the oldest technique of meditation in the world, and that happens over for a four-day course, and it's very interesting. It's four days in a row, and it's only about two hours each day. At the end of that four days, you have a tool for life. You are self-sufficient. You go home, and you're doing it. You're doing it every day and starting to notice the changes of this, even within those first four days. So 
our focus, our expertise is in teaching people a life tool that will give them that self-sufficiency and then we're with them on that journey. So there's a lot of support along the way. Um, so that's what we do. And it's a, it's a great, you know, it's a great privilege to see the changes that we've been talking about in our students. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's very easy uh, to learn, very enjoyable practice, um, the process of learning, and you will notice changes straight away. Mm. Yeah, I can vouch for that. My partner's been been through the the teachings or the course. Uh, I have a couple of other friends and clients, of course, remain nameless, who've been through the course. And my sister-in-law is going to be joining at the end of March, I believe. Um, so, um, yeah, and you can figure that out. Thing. You know, it's um, that word of mouth. It's, you know, it's wonderful. You know, just it's like branches on a tree. You know, someone learns and then people see the changes in them and it's like, oh, I'd like a bit of that. What's going on for that person, you know, mm. and you talk about it. And and so this spreading effect is is great, you know, it's, uh, and we need more of that in the world right now. You know, we we yeah. need more of that sense of connection and collaboration and as you say, to be in the zone, to be able to deal, whether it's, you know, the physical performance or the challenges of something in that way, or whether it's all of the the more mental performance issues that we have to deal with in our lives, you know, to be in the best place to be able to handle that. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's certainly meeting the need of the time. Great. Well, I'll link to the London Meditation Centre. Um, I'll also link to the book, which is Why Meditate, subtitled Because It Works. We could have just said that and then uh, that would have been a short podcast, wouldn't it? But hopefully we've given people an understanding of, of the why and the how and try to create a bit of a spark of excitement about it as a way, if nothing else, of managing your physiology, something we're trying to do all the time. There we have it in a fairly simple technique. Gillian, thank you very much. That's a pleasure. Want more? Take our Wellbeing at Work company scorecard and get a free personalised report full of actionable insights. Or if you're interested in finding out what your health IQ is, take our Health IQ scorecard. Links can be found in the show notes. And finally, if you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to share and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you.